I am so excited about today. Today begins a series where we're going to dive into Scripture. And for some of you, this may be very familiar territory. You, you may have already read through, studied, read up on, and have a stack of books about the Sermon on the Mount. But for several, this may be your first time to experience this. Now, you may have assumed that Jesus preached, but you didn't know that we actually had one of his sermons recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. And I relate to this story because in 2015... I had an opportunity to travel to the Holy Land. And in the Holy Land around Israel, we came to a place, and I'm going to show you some scenes of, that. these are pictures that come beside the Sea of Galilee. And as you watch these images, <clears throat> I want you in your mind's eye to picture whatever your image of Jesus is in the robe, that you see him standing there, with the Sea of Galilee, perhaps behind him, in a very natural amphitheater-type setting. And this is now referred to as the Mount of Beatitudes. But tradition and history tell us we pretty well know where this sermon was delivered. And it was delivered from this spot. And so this is what 2,000 years ago, a group of people would have gathered on a hillside. And as you already heard in Scripture in our scripture reading today, Jesus comes and he sits down. That seems strange to us because we tend to stand up to teach. But in that culture, you sat down and he began to deliver a message. And that message has a profound effect even today for us. And it has moved through history, and it has changed history. And I'm going to be bold and suggest that we are in a very stressful time in our world today. In fact, um, one of my good friends, Richard Brown from this church, he came up and showed me his, his T-shirt. It's a dumpster fire with the words 2020 across it. And we haven't even begun the political season yet. How about that? As we move into this, most of you could be asking the question, how shall we now live? How are we going to navigate through this? And I'm going to suggest, and then Chris is going to preach along with me, that the directions for us, the instructions for us, are found inside of the Sermon on the Mount. And my hope is this, this is not just a series where we end up knowing more. Where we just spend 12 weeks studying and then we can, we can recite it better, which I'm all for. That we know the words better, which I'm all for. That we understand some of the Greek language, which I'm all for. But that we be different by the time that it's said and done. That we'd be people that actually live and act differently because we've spent time with these words. And so this is going to be a series of sermons about a sermon. And you may wonder, why would we spend 12 weeks on a sermon that you can recite in about 17 minutes? Because I think it's got that kind of potential. And I want us to understand what God, what Jesus is calling to. Well, to help set the stage, first of all... If you have a Bible or you have an app, I want you to open to Matthew chapter 5. If you're at home, I want you to find a Bible. And I want to encourage you, 
in the past, if you've been part of the Western Hills Church, we've created or we've had journals available. And in fact, our series that we just completed on Luke, we all went through a journal together. Um, we don't have those created for you for this time, but I'm going to encourage you to find a notebook, find a journal, or find a Bible that you can write in, someplace for you to take notes, because I would love for you, by the end of this series, that you have just been covered up with the words of the Sermon on the Mount. Once again, these are Jesus' words. And so I'm going to invite you to go on that journey with us, and I'm going to invite you to prepare for that. And so get your favorite spiral-bound notebook or loose-leaf paper, whatever it is, and I want you to go along with us each, each time. And today, to set that up, out of Matthew chapter 5, now, we're not going to preach it in the exact same order that Jesus spoke it. Now, that's not because I'm trying to edit Jesus and think he's, I can do a better job. That's because I think we become so familiar with it that sometimes we don't understand what he's doing in the thing. And we're going to cover in today's sermon and next week's sermon the what is it we're supposed to be taking away from this sermon. Because I tell you, there's going to be times in this series and in this sermon when you're going to go, seriously, Jesus expects us to do that? And so we need to set it up because he gives us the why. And to set that up, I've got a clip from Michael Jr. Michael Jr. is a Christian comedian, and several of us went down to the Hills Conference uh, several years ago, and we got a chance to hear him live as he did that. But I've got a clip where he's going to introduce this idea of what it means to know why you're doing something. Why would we try to live out the Sermon on the Mount? But let me refer you to the clip. We got special permission to use this, and so this is Michael Jr. at one of his uh, comedic concerts. How do I know? A lot of people, when they think of the phrase, how do I know, they always want to put the what behind it. How do I know what I'm supposed to do? The, the question that you really should ask is, how do I know why I'm here? Because when you know your why, your what becomes more clear and more impactful. If you know, like for instance, um, people know that I do comedy, but that's what I do. My why is to inspire people to walk in purpose. So I can do comedy, I can write books, I can be in a movie, because all of it is motivated by my why. In fact, I have a new, uh, a new web series out called Michael Jr. Break Time. Uh, we probably just did the sixth episode. It's on YouTube. So every single Wednesday at 3 o'clock, we drop a new episode on YouTube of Michael Jr. Break Time. What it is, is it's me, I travel around the country and I do stand-up comedy, in case you didn't know. <laughs> and in the middle of my comedy set sometime, I'll stop and just talk to my audience. And we've been filming this and it's, you know, it's, it's pretty cool. So we're in Winston-Salem. I'm gonna show you a clip from Winston-Salem. And I'm just talking to this guy in the audience and he tells me that he's a, uh, a musical instructor at a school. So I was like, all right, you're a musical instructor. You know, can you sing? Let me hear you sing a song. So this is what happened at the last episode of Michael Jr.'s Break Time. Check it. So you're a musical director. Cool. Yes, sir. All right, so um, let me get a couple, let me get a couple bars of like uh, Amazing Grace. Can you do the first part of that? Let me, go ahead. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. That saved a wretch like me. Wow. That bro could sing. You know what I'm saying? All right, all right. 
Um, now, what you give me the version is if uh, your uncle just got out of jail, you got shot in the back when you was a kid. I'm just saying, let me see the hood version real quick. If you, you know which version I'm talking about, just see if that exists. Let me see what you got. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Okay, um, here's what I want you to catch. The first time I asked him to sing, he knew what he was doing. The second time, he knew why he was doing it. When you know your why, your what becomes more impactful because you're walking towards or in your purpose. When you know your why, your what becomes more impactful. You're walking towards and in your purpose. That is the best setup I know to describe what we will be doing inside the Sermon on the Mount. Because time and time again, Jesus is going to preach a message that we're going to look at, and I have often looked at and said, that's not even practical. Who really would do something like that? Jesus has the audacity to look at this crowd that day and say crazy things like, when somebody hits you on one cheek, you turn the other and say, have another go at it. And that's where I want to go, seriously? And it will not make any sense until we understand the why is he asking us to do this. And so we're going to start in a part of the scripture today where we get at the why would Jesus ask us to live this way. And as we jump into that, I want you once again, picture that mountainside, that lake, that sea of Galilee down there that you saw earlier. In your mind's eye, there's Jesus and he sat down to preach. And as he preaches, what's gathered around him on that hillside that day, you need to understand the crowd. The crowd was... Farmers and peasants and shepherds, and not a romanticized, idyllic kind of shepherd. Shepherds were just, they were kind of at the bottom. And <clears throat> these were just the day laborers of the day. And so nobody looked at that group and thought, wow, this is the start of a revolution. We've got the power players here. It was a group of people assembled that were on the edge. They had no leverage. They had no power. They had very little finances of any kind of wealth. They had no leverage in government. They had no standing. They were 
kind of the lower class citizens in a lower class nation that was all run by Rome. And Jesus is going to stand up and he's going to say things this day and he's going to start a revolution. And that's exactly what they want to hear. They want to hear revolutionary talk because they are tired of Rome running the show. They've been waiting for one that's going to come and lead, this, lead them out of this. And Jesus is about to talk revolution, but it's not the kind of revolution they think is coming. And so he's going to ask them to do some very strange things, but before he does that, he's going to give them some nicknames. Anybody ever have a nickname growing up? You know, uh, unfortunately, nicknames somehow can kind of stick with us, you know, and, and lead us. And you may not have liked your nickname growing up. We had a young boy in one of the classes. I was young also, so my age. Um, one of the classes growing up that uh, his name was Froggy. I can't even tell you what his real name is anymore because we just always called him Froggy. That stuck with it. When I was a youth ministry intern at a church in Abilene, you know, I'm getting to know the youth group, and they find out that my last name is Meyer, and this is kind of dated now, but there used to be a popular commercial for a certain brand of bologna named Oscar Meyer, and they had a certain song that went with that. My bologna has a first name. Does this ring a bell for anybody but me? See, I'm, you know, you know, O-S-C-A-R, my bologna has a second name, M-A. It's not even spelled the same, but that didn't matter to them. They weren't legalistic about it. M-A-Y-E-R. And so my nickname became Oscar. Now, the problem with that illustration is that some of you are not going to hear anything but that song for the rest of the sermon, I know. But the, the intern that came after me, this kind of became a habit for them, so they called me Oscar, 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 and I just started responding to Oscar. You know, they'd be like, okay, so Oscar's going to give the Devo, or, you know, which van you get into, I'm getting the one that Oscar's driving, or whatever. And then the next guy had a certain resemblance to the mouse in American Tale, uh, the cartoon mouse, Fival. And that became his nickname. And so these nicknames stuck. Well, Jesus gives us a nickname. He gives this ragtag crowd that day a nickname. And then he gives the same one to us. And again, remember, it's people without power. It's people without leverage, without political office, without financing, without even the confidence to think that they have the ability to take on the Roman Empire. And perhaps we feel the same way at times. That perhaps we feel, who am I? What, what am I supposed to do in this moment? How can I leverage change here? The systems, you know, 2020, too much craziness is going on for me to affect any kind of difference. Here's the nicknames Jesus gives us. Matthew chapter 5, and this is where we're going to start. I'm going to read just a few verses today. I'm going to start in verse 13. <clears throat> and here comes the nicknames. You are... The salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. First nickname, you're salt. Now, for some of us, that's not news. You're a salty person for a long time now. <clears throat> salt kind of has a negative rap in our world today. If you talk to the doctors, you know, you should avoid salt, control your salt, limit your salt, <clears throat> or we use it for a rough and gruff kind of person. That's not how Jesus is using it. Understand, in this day, salt was currency. Roman soldiers would be paid in rations of salt. 
Why was salt so important? Because it did two critical things. One of them we still use it to do, by and large. One of them we have other means of. The, the most critical one in that day and age was it was refrigeration. It was the way you preserve something. <clears throat> you didn't have an ice box. You didn't have ice. Can you imagine going through a summer without ice? Just, it pains me. I'm so glad we live in this world. <laughs> but they had no ice, and so, and your food is far more precious in that category. Because, you know, for me, and and I know that I need to be better about this, but if the milk goes bad or the bread gets stale or it gets moldy, and, you know, you ever discover the bread at the back of the cabinet and you pull it out and... You recognize the bag, but you can't recognize anything in it. You know, that happened to me just yesterday. I was like, oh, this is old. Well, what do we do? We run to the store and we get some more. This is a culture where if you slaughtered an animal, that was, that was a grand expense. I mean, that was a, a savings kind of expense. You needed a way to preserve that. And so meat would be packed and wrapped in salt vegetables would be packed and wrapped in salt because once again, once the harvest came in, you had to go the distance. We bring food from all over the world now. So there's always a harvest going on. We are so not used to this way. Salt was precious because it preserved and protected against rot and decay. Now, the second reason we still use salt makes everything what? Tastes better. Can I get an amen on that right there? You know, my mom used to tell me, now, it's rude if you salt the food when they see it after they first served it. And I'm like, I don't care. I'm just grateful they gave it to me. And so, but it makes everything taste better. I mean, and have you noticed how food trends have picked up on this lately? Now, there's like almost anything has with sea salt added, you know, or, or flavor with, with, with sea salt. That's because it improves everything. And there's scientific studies on this that salt has this strange reaction with your taste buds on your tongue and it, and you'll hear this phrase, it wakes up or it livens up all food. So salt is an incredible complement. It preserves against decay. It's precious. It's valuable commodity. And whatever system it in, enters into, it makes it better. That's the first nickname. Here's the second. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. You are the light of the world. Now, once again, light is not a scarcity to us. In fact, we actually have a term that nobody in the first century would have ever even imagined. We have what we call light pollution. That's where if you go try to go see the pretty stars at night, you actually have to work a little bit harder to get out away from the city lights and the, the street lights and the porch lights and the flood lights. You've got to work harder to get out there. Imagine being back in a culture where when the sun went down, the light went out. Now, they had oil lamps, they had campfires, they had torches, but 
imagine how much more work it takes to light those and keep those going than simply reaching over and flipping a switch or just having the street always on. I always have great memories of my grandmother's farm. She had one of those mercury vapor lights, you know, those lights that you can actually hear. You know, they've got a buzz to them. And I I was just so fascinated, you know, because like when the sun went down, the light came on. And so even in that, we'd have to work to get outside of the scope of the light. Imagine being in a culture where every day when the sun goes down, it's, you don't want to be somewhere out there because you don't have headlights where you can drive back from. When the sun goes down, you're at home or you're at the place where you're going to spend the night because those are your options. That, that's what you have to do. And so light becomes this very precious thing. And there's not all this light pollution that we talk about. And so if, you, if there's a city in a distance, and he's referring to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem was like this prized jewel for them. And it does. It sits up high on a hill. And so they would have all the lamps burning in Jerusalem. And from a distance on that hilltop, you would see that city. And it would bring you what? Hope. Because that's what light does, right? Notice how scary the darkness is? I mean, as a kid, I mean, my scariest moment was between that time when my light went off at night and I could make it under the covers, because you know under the covers you're safe. You know, and so I would like try to beat the light actually going out, like the flash or something. You know, and I would like kick it off and I dive under the covers because the mundane things become what? They become scary in the dark. They become unfamiliar in the dark. Where does injury happen? In the dark. You ever walked across the the room and you stub your toe on a piece of furniture that you know has been there for as long as you've been in the house and yet somehow your big toe still finds it and you kick it with all your force? Why? Because that's the power of the darkness. Have you ever gone across and stepped on a Lego? That'll change you. You'll get religion real fast after that. Because injury happens when we can't see our way. And so when he says, you're the light of the world, he's not talking about something, you're something as easily as flipping on a switch and flipping off a switch. And you're not just a matter of convenience. You're light. And if people are going to find the path, if they're going to know where to walk, if they're going to know how to find their way home, if they're going to avoid injury, and ultimately if they're going to have hope, it's from your light, he says. You're salt of the earth. You're the preservative. You prevent rot and decay. You make everything that you come in contact with better. You're the light of the world. You shine bright and you show the world a different way. You show the world how you can make it through without injury, without damage, without violence, without fear, without giving up hope. These are the nicknames that Jesus gives us. He gave them to this group on the hillside that day. And, and I know that when he said, you're the salt of the earth and you're the light of the world, 
it had to land on their ears going, us? Because once again, remember, there was no power in that group. There was no <clears throat> leverage inside that group. And so they look at themselves and they say, we're the salt of the earth. We're the light of the world. And they may not have been able to understand it. They, they probably had no vision for it going forward. Because all they could see is the big power for Rome. You know, and, and the things that Rome could build. And the armies that Rome could set sail. And the taxes that Rome imposed. And they had to feel helpless in that moment. And they thought, how are we going to do this? But Jesus begins to lay out a battle plan, if you would. And it's the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. It's a different kind of battle plan. It's what nobody expected that day. And I'm sure even as they walked away that day, they shook their heads and thought, this is not going to change anything. But what he sets in motion on that day, and through the rest of his ministry and his mission and his crucifixion and his resurrection, ultimately begins to change the world. See, when you think of Rome, you think of the city of and the empire. Well, in the city, one of the great archaeological remains of the Roman Colosseum. A, a technological wonder for its day and impressive in ours too. The number of people that they can move in. The, num- the way that they actually had hydraulic lifts to lift up the animals and the gladiators from a basement level onto the, the arena floor. The way that they could actually flood the Colosseum and set boats a sail in it so they could reenact um, uh, sea battles. Can you imagine doing that? Well, obviously, one of the things that the Colosseum is known for is it is known for its gladiatorial games and the way that it would martyr Christians. Because, see, the persecution was going to rise so much that Christians became entertainment fodder. Because they wouldn't bow a knee to Caesar and Rome that they were then just as mere entertainment to appease the crowd, sacrificed to gladiators and to lions and to wild beasts. And it all happened in the spectacle of the Colosseum. That was until Christianity came along and changed the world. And what looked like the weak underdog... The, the one with no power, this movement of people that were being sacrificed to the land. If you go to the Colosseum today, you can find what they call the emperor's box. This would have been the greatest seats in the house, the, the sky box for us. You know, this would have been going to Jerry World and getting to sit in Jerry's, you know, his own private suite kind of deal. If you go there, where the emperor sat, And all the most impressive and powerful people in Rome, you will find a cross carved into the emperor's box today. Because the revolution that Jesus started was not going to be stopped by Rome. It wasn't going to be stopped by a government. It wasn't going to be stopped by any military force. It's been tried to be squashed out time and time and time again all through history. And yet the salt and the light continue to persevere. So what are we to do today? 
as our country is already in kind of craziness and it's still in craziness and the political season is probably going to be one of the nastiest we've ever seen. How are we to live? You're to live as salt and light. Whatever environment you're in, and you may think, I've got no leverage here. I, I've got, I, I don't know how to, to be a part of this kind of movement. It's just how you live. And we're going to talk about living out the Sermon on the Mount. Because remember, when you understand your why, it impacts your what. We'll get to what we're supposed to do. But I want you to understand the why. Why do we live? Because you're salt and light. Which means, right now, if you're a follower of Jesus, wherever you find yourself, you're salt and you're light in that context. So to some of our students as they go back to school, perhaps you're on a sports team. And I know that's going to be a crazy how we're going to do sports this year. But perhaps on your football team or on your volleyball team, and you look around and you think, all my teammates... They are living a different kind of life, but here's a suggestion. What if you're there to be the salt and the preservative, and without you being there, the whole team begins to rot and decay all the faster? What about your workplace? Your workplace, and you say, look, uh, man, when I go to work, all I want to do is put my head down, get through the day, because I need the paycheck. It is an ungodly place to work. But God has you there and you're the salt, what if your presence as a preservative is the only thing that prevents your workplace from collapsing into total moral decay? Or you would say, maybe this way, say, my work's a dark place. But it's not as dark as it could be because you're there and you're light. And even in a dark place, you're there showing hope and a path forward, and a way to live that avoids the injuries and the fear and the concerns and the terror that comes with the night. See, even though it looks like we're not winning, and I get it, it looks like we're not winning most of the time, Jesus doesn't sweat that like we do. Do you ever notice that? Jesus doesn't seem to be in a panic. I mean, I'd want to come up alongside him as he delivers this message, and I'd go, hey, Jesus, that's a nice warm-up. Let's go get in front of some powerful people now, and then you can preach that sermon. And Jesus looks at the crowd and goes, no, no, no. You're the salt, and you're the light. And wherever you go, you are the salt, and you're the light, and may God use you in a powerful way in that setting. And here's what I want to end on. Do you notice he doesn't say, I want you to become the salt and light. He says, you are the salt and the light. That's who you are. That's your why you live this way. He pronounces you that. One of the books that Chris and I are using for this is the book Living Jesus by Randy Harris. And Randy was one of my professors in college. And I highly recommend the book. And one of the illustrations that he gives at this point is he references the fact that he, he does weddings and he's had the same thought on weddings that I've had. Now, he puts it in much nicer words. But I've always been fascinated by the fact that when I do a wedding, something actually happens in the middle of the wedding, of the ceremony. There comes a point where I say, I now pronounce you 
husband and wife, which was interesting as a youth minister because the youth minister, a lot of my ministry was spent, you know, telling kids to maintain certain physical boundaries and be very careful of that. And then later when they grew up and went to college, they asked me to do their wedding. So I got to be the guy that undid that. Why? Because the words mattered. Because I was pronouncing something that did not exist. This husband and wife state, this husband and wife status did not exist prior to the ceremony. Then in the middle of the ceremony, when those words are uttered, something happens and now they become husband and wife and you may now kiss your bride in the pronouncement. And I love the fact that there's something that's created in that moment and that those words have power to them. Jesus, whose words always have power, stood on a hillside and looked at a group like this and says, you are the salt and the light of the earth. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I ask that we would hear the words of Jesus and realize why we should live this out. That we've been called to be salt and preserve the world against decay. And we've been called to be light and show a path and to shine bright. Father, I pray for each of us as we feel weak and people oftentimes without a voice that we would join the revolution and that we would live out being salt and light. So, Father, I pray for the student on a football team or a sports team or a band that feels like everyone around them does not care about your name. That They would see that they are salt in that moment. Pray for everybody that goes to work and feels that they may be the only Christian in their workplace, the only one that even knows the name of Jesus, that by the way they live, they would know that they are light to that place. Father, I pray for someone inside of a family that feels like they're the only one with faith in that family, that in a very real way, you're using them to be salt and preserve that family until hearts are softened, Father. Father, you have said it was so. May now we live out as salt and light to your glory, to your fame, and to your desire. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. If there's any way that we can minister to you, we'd love to have that conversation. If you want to just leave a note for us on the table, and we'll get back with you, Chris or I will, we'll, we can do that. If you want to text in or, or look up westernhills.church, you can let us know that way. But we'd love to pray with you and for you as we go on this journey. We're going to start a song today to wrap up this time of message, and then we're going to move into our communion that Chris is going to lead us in. But this is about building the kingdom. And I, this is going to be an unfamiliar song to many of us. It was to me. But we're going to come back to this song again and again throughout this series. And I want you to listen to the words and think about what it means to be the salt and the light.
talking about building the kingdom, the kingdom where Jesus rules, even in this world where it seems like we've got no power. If you would, let the psalm bless us.